you very much. I'm not going to talk very much at all, actually. I'm just going to introduce my colleagues. So the development of successful organ transplantation was one of the major advances of 20th century medicine. It's not new, of course. It's about 60 years since the first successful kidney transplants were done in the UK. And this year is the 50th, 50th anniversary of the first successful liver transplant in Europe, which was done at Anna Brooks Hospital. So despite that, it's still attended by problems. And the two major problems in transplantation are a shortage of suitable donor organs, which is still critical. And then the second thing is that kidney transplants have a limited life expectancy. So you, all transplants. So for a kidney transplant, you might expect 10 years from a deceased donor kidney transplant and 20 years from a kidney transplant from a living donor. So they're pretty good results. But if you're 18 years old and you're getting a kidney that's even going to last 20 years, then that's, that's not good enough for you. So our research in Cambridge is uh, trying to address these problems of shortages of donors and the fact that you want to, the results of kidney transplants to, to, to improve. So we're going to have talks from three of my colleagues, and I'm going to start by introducing Dr. Sarah Hosford, who's a senior research associate in the Department of Surgery. Thank you. Good evening. I'm not going to say very much either, actually, um, except to start off with, as, as Prof said, that there's, there's a chronic shortage of, of organ donors worldwide. And these are some statistics really from, from the World Health Organization. So only 10% of the worldwide need for organ transplantation is being met. In terms of the kidney in the UK, the average waiting time for a kidney transplant is between two and three years. On average, three people every day die waiting for a kidney transplant. And each year, 875 people are taken off the, the waiting list due to ill health, and often these patients die while waiting for a transplant. So I'm just going to show you a short video, which I hope works, of, of an introduction to our research. Thank you. 
hope everybody could hear that okay. Um, so now I'm, I'm going to hand over to the two of our um, PhD students in the department. The first is Tom Adams, who will hopefully um, give a few words of introduction, um, and then Jenna will follow. Uh, right, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you very much for the introduction, uh, Prof and Sarah. Um, hopefully this is going to work, and I'm going to be able to stand in front. Um, so you might recognise me as the, the disemboweled boy from the, the embarrassing video. Um, so we heard a little bit about the, the problem. Um, um, uh, there are, there's a gross shortage of organs for, for people who need them. Um, but why do we need to preserve these organs? Why do we need to move them around? Well, unfortunately, it's often the case that the organ, the right organ for the right recipient, isn't in the same part of the country. And this is a problem in the UK, across Europe, and in the States, and really worldwide. So it's not uncommon at all to find the perfect donor organ and its perfect match at opposite ends of the country. So um, on a daily basis, um, a patient in Cambridge, um, in the rather unfashionable and old-looking Edinburgh Hospital, um, might hear of the, a good offer for a good kidney or any other organ up from a very shiny new hospital in Glasgow or somewhere else in the country. Um, and this is not an insignificant journey for the organ to take. So it's six hours by, by ambulance, perhaps a bit faster if you put the blue lights on, um, and perhaps a little bit faster if you come by aeroplane or by helicopter, but it's still a long time. So how do we normally do it? Um, so whilst I'm waiting for that to happen, I'll tell you a little bit, bit about my story and who I am. So um, I'm training to be a, a doctor in intensive care and emergency medicine. Um, I did my medical training in London um, and then I did a few years of working as a junior doctor, also in London, and I've now stepped out of a training program to do this PhD in Cambridge, and then when that's finished, I'll go back into a training program somewhere in the country. Um, if anyone's got any questions at the end or afterwards about medical school or getting into research um, in the UK, then I'm very happy to answer any of those questions, uh, and I'm sure Jenna will be able to give a sort of international perspective on, on research and, and medical school as well. All right, so our organ's got to get from A to B. It's got a six-hour journey to get from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital to Edinburgh. The normal way in which this happens is uh, in what is essentially a glorified icebox. Um, it looks a bit prettier from the outside, but it's essentially the same. And if you were to crack this open, um, what you'd see is you'd see your organ inside a protective preservation solution, uh, tightly sealed in two or three bags, surrounded by ice. Um, and this is designed to keep the organ at around four degrees centigrade. It's not meant to, for it to freeze, and it's basically the idea behind it is to slow down cellular metabolism almost to a stop. So this method's been in play for about 50 years. It's what we've, we've always used. And it has a number of, of advantages. Um, it's quick, it's simple, and it's very cheap. Um, but there are also disadvantages to it too. Um, so we know, unfortunately, that organs continue to deteriorate during this period of cold storage whilst it's being moved around. And also, as you heard from the video, it makes it very difficult to assess the organ because the organ's wrapped inside a couple of bags, and when you get it out and you put it um, on the on the theatre table, um, it's pale, it's not as well as loving it, and you've no idea if it's going to produce urine, if it's a kidney, how well it's going to beat, if it's a heart, or, or if it's a liver, if it's going to produce bile. So a bit of audience participation. Who can tell me what this is? Mitochondria, yeah. What does it do? So we had an answer from there, synthesizes ATP. Um, so ATP uh, is adenosine triphosphate, so that's a usable package of, cell, of, of cellular energy. So we can think of the mitochondria, they're, they're bits inside the cell, and they're like the generators of the cell. They, they take the fuel that we eat and the oxygen that we breathe, and they turn it into usable energy pretty much 
all of the things that cells do and therefore all of the things that um, happen in our body. And much in the same way that generators need fuel, oxygen and a spark to get going, our, our mitochondria need these three things as well. So they need oxygen, they need fuel in the form of glucose, and they also need to be at the right body temperature. So normally inside the human body, we get oxygen from the air we breathe, um, we eat hopefully two or three meals a day healthily, and we have the right body temperature being maintained. And this means that our mitochondria are very happy, they can produce a lot of useful energy, and this allows our cells and organs to function. But when you take the organ out of the body and you put it into cold storage, it's not going to be able to do that. So we're not giving the organs any oxygen. They're not at the right temperature. We've cooled them right down to around four degrees. Um, there is some glucose and various other things in the solution. Um, and this ma makes our mitochondria very unhappy. So they, they still produce some energy, and they scrub around and try and use whatever they can to produce what they can for the cells. Um, but unfortunately, this is, it's, it's quite a toxic um, solution to the problem because the metabolites that it makes, the, the byproducts, um, are quite harmful to the cells. And when the, when the organ gets plumbed back in, um, these harmful metabolites then get flushed around the organ and around the body as well. So we know that the longer an organ is in cold storage, so we know our organs went from Glasgow down to um, Edinburgh, over that six hours or possibly more, the organ quality is going to be deteriorating. And it's not uncommon for kidneys especially um, to be kept on ice in this fashion for upwards of 12 hours, up, even up to around 20 hours. So what we want to do with our, our normothermic machine perfusion um, is we want to try and revive the mitochondria, revive the cells, and revive the organ itself. So we can give it, we have an oxygenator in here. We also have a heater at the back. You can see it says 37.6 degrees, so almost at around body temperature. Um, and in our reservoir here of blood, we've also got glucose and insulin and various other nutrients going in to help to cells respire, as we say, to help the mitochondria do their job. And what we're trying to do is flip these unhappy mitochondria and turn them into happy mitochondria so that we can revive the organ. Now, throughout the transplant process, there's, a, there's one question on everybody's mind, really, is will the transplant work? So as, as surgeons, as scientists, as, as doctors, we have to be thinking of ways in which we can assess the organ to work out how well it's going to work once we've plumbed it in. And it's actually a remarkably difficult question to answer. We get some idea of how the organ is going to work based on the health of the donor. If the donor has more medical conditions, it's less likely that the organ will work well. Um, but as we heard before, in cold storage, you don't get much of an idea. And it's, it's, it's really a case of plumbing it in and, and going by what the donor would like. So we think that through normothermic machine, machine perfusion, we can better assess how good the organ is. So you saw the organ on the machine up, it gets blood flow coming through it, um, we can look at the amount of blood flow it's getting, we can look at how much oxygen it's using, and also it starts to produce urine, and we can both see the quantity of urine it's producing and also watch the, the chemistry of that urine to see um, how well the organ is working inside. Um, and also you saw you get this quite striking change of colour as the, as the blood diffuses through, and um, what our group has done is develop a score based on all of these things um, as, a, as a predictive uh, measure of how well we think the organ is going to do. So when you look at the kidneys, it looks nice um, globally pink and well diffused, uh, diffused above. Um, that's a good sign. If you can see on the right here, there are areas of nice diffusion. There's also these sort of blotchy purple areas. This is probably where there are very, very small blood clots inside the kidney uh, that are stopping it from working well. And we know that if, if a kidney has a good score, which in our system is a low score, it 
it's more likely to work better um, after it's been transplanted. So we're trying to mimic normal conditions when we're pumping these another organ. But what we're, what we're beginning to learn is just as a developing technology is that an organ functioning outside the body doesn't work in the same way as it does in the body. Obviously in the body, the, the organs are in constant communication with each other, either through nervous signals or through hormones or through other small molecules that are whizzing around the circulation. And through this communication, they're making sure that obviously the, the, the whole organism stays alive, but also they help each other with various problems. So for example, the kidneys and the lungs work together to, to regulate the level of ability of blood. Um, the lungs are very good at changing the ability of the blood quickly, and the kidneys do it over uh, a longer term. And what we found is that our kidney on its own, without the lung inside the circuit, isn't equally good at regulating the level of acid in the blood without the lungs. So really, all of, all of the rules that we know about organ physiology have to be sort of rewritten for our ex vivo circuit, as we call it, because they, they simply don't apply. So we have to go back and think of all the questions that we think we've answered already and, and ask these questions again. So some of my work um, is looking at how much oxygen we need to give the kidney, what temperature is best to feed it at, and also how long we want to feed it for. Um, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about the results of those, but briefly, um, we can give these kidneys on our circuit probably less oxygen than they need in the body. In terms of temperature, it's probably best to keep them around body temperature. We, we've tried doing it slightly less, and they weren't quite as happy. And normally, we could fuse our organs for about one hour, um, and we find when we're thinking of this in a clinical setting, whereby this organ's about to be transplanted into a patient, that's a useful time frame. But we're starting to do longer both Arjun's and other groups have seen that we can safely diffuse this organ for two, four, six, and even eight hours. So there's a potential there for us to do it much longer. So thank you so much for that great introduction to our system. Like everyone said, I'm Jenna, and I have the privilege of being involved in a highly collaborative PhD project between the Yale School of Medicine and the Cambridge Department of Surgery. Most of my work involves bridging the gap between biomedical engineering and surgical techniques to develop pre-transplantation therapies for kidneys. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that story today. So before we really get into it, I think it's important to think about how drugs are had any interaction with the medical care system, you know that you're either given oral tablets, topical ointments, or some type of IV injection. And the thing about this is that whenever you're being treated, all of these methods are being absorbed right into the bloodstream, and you end up treating the whole patient. So really, you're treating a problem that might only be in one part of the body, completely systemically. And that's, you don't always want to be treating the body systemically. Sometimes we want to hone in on one specific organ or one specific tumor. So let's look at this through the lens of a lung tumor, for example. Let's say we have a lung tumor, and on every part of the body, there are certain receptors, and every receptor has a ligand. You can sort of think about this as a lock and a key. Like there are locks all throughout the body, and we, we know the keys that fit into them. So in the past 10 years or so, drugs have been mimicked to, uh, have been designed to mimic biological interactions. And this means that if we inject a drug and we have the right lock on the right drug, it will go, in theory, right to the, or the right key on the right drug, it'll go right to the lock. So 
This is called the homing effect, where we think that the drug are, is supposed to go right to the tumor, right to the diseased part of the body. And in this case, you would be completely avoiding the baby's immune system because the drug would accumulate right in the tumor. And there would be no toxicity, no off-target effects because it wouldn't be circulating for very long. It would just go to the disease site of interest. So one particular uh, type of technology that I'm familiar with and I use in a lot of my research is nanoparticles. And that's what a lot of, it's great for targeting and it's been proven time and time again to be safe in patients. So these are vehicles for drugs and other genetic therapies that are biodegradable and made of polymers. They can have customizable size. I personally work with nanoparticles from 100 to 200 nanometers. So just for a key of reference, it's about 10,000 times smaller than a grain of salt. Um, but you can customize them to whatever you want for any certain type of disease. So they're really great for people turning them for personalized medicine. And so this hydrophobic core or polymer enables us to encapsulate a range of really small drugs that have been proven to be effective in clinics or different types of gene therapies. And once these nanoparticles are within the cell, they're able to have sustained release for whatever time period you want, so that could be minutes, hours, weeks, months. So it's really great, and you can clean it. You can clean the temp freeze for whatever situation you have. You can add another layer of polymer on the outside of this core to help avoid the immune system and avoid and then you can target and add the antibodies or the ligands to this outer layer. So you could really use that lock to attune that system and try to hone in on your target. However, as you may have guessed, we haven't heard of any type of miracle bullet drug because that's not how targeting works. People are kind of misinformed in this subject, but nanoparticles will enter the blood just like any other drug you're delivering because they're being delivered systemically. There are proteins that are
able to clear these sweat spots through a strong lytic agent. And now the skinny looks pretty healthy and it's going to have a baseline for delivering widespread active targeting within our nano, uh, normal generation of tumor detection. So once we have healthy kidneys, we have to start thinking about what's the best receptor? What are we going to get for the most widespread drug delivery? So you have to think of a cell as having a whole garden of receptors. And you have to pick the one that's most abundant and the one where the ligand will stick for the longest on the receptor. So in this case, this cell right here, the blue one, would be the best to most abundant. So we compared in a preliminary study two different types of antibodies, ICAM2 and CD31. They're both surface receptors on uh, the lining of blood cells, of blood vessels. And we found that ICAM2 is brighter than CD31 in this staining protocol, which means that ICAM2 is more abundant and it'll stick on longer. So this is the optimal target from these two. Now there are tons of receptors that we can investigate, so we're just really brushing the surface on this one. But this is some of the work that we've been doing to really optimize our system. Now, it's important to think about what are, what are we doing this for? How can we treat the kidney and what were we going to treat? So ischemia reperfusion injury is an inevitable side effect of transplant cases. Uh, this injury occurs right after the blood is reintroduced into the organ, and normal Normal thermic machine perfusion has been shown to alleviate some of the effects of ischemia reperfusion injury, but not completely. So we don't completely know all of the mechanisms behind this injury. We just know that when the kidney goes in, it's pretty shocked from all the uh, reconstitution of blood flow. We do know that it causes a lot of inflammation. We know that there are uh, immune cells that go through the blood vessel wall, and we want to see how we can stop that. So if we're able to help these marginal organs, and the more marginal the organ we're using, the worse the injury is, the worse response it'll have to this ischemia reperfusion injury. And we're using more marginal organs every day, so it's important that we address this. But if we have nanoparticles, for example, we're able to treat multiple mechanisms of ischemia reperfusion injury at once. So we could bind to these surface receptors on these blood vessels, uh, stop any type of immune cells coming in, penetrating this wall, which is a big part of the inflammation. And we can also release drugs that stop any inflammatory processes. So we're really attacking this at multiple angles that other drugs haven't been able to do. They kind of look at one avenue, but we're branching out with our nanoparticles. So right here, I have a micro CT, an enhanced contrast of a perfused kidney. And I think this is where we're going. We want a bigger picture of how good our rejected from transplant throughout the whole country. They pass through all the centers, and if all the centers have rejected them,
them. Uh, we get them for research. And there are about 10 centers within the UK that are vying for this organ. And so we're lucky enough to get one. been introduced in Wales and we're not sure that it's had any effect at all. The problem is if you are if your name is not on the register and you haven't opted out and you died and then your family we go along and we say it's our right by law to take the organs. So imagine I doing that and I'm faced with say a wife who says please don't do this to my husband. Then we're not going to do it. So in fact uh, intensive care doctors and quite a lot of transplant doctors don't feel that it's probably going to make a, a, a big difference. What's important about it though is it brings the problem into the public domain a bit more so people are talking about it more and that's always a good thing. The, the, the key is the other way around really is we need more people with their names on the organ donor registry and we need people to express their views to their families so that we don't get some wife saying please don't do this because being made clear to her that that's what they want to do after their lifetime. It's, it's amazing information from kidney research. UK is one of the, the largest kidney charities, in the, or is the largest kidney charity, charity in the UK. Um, and they, they've, they've got some statistics that say that one in three families decline to present for organ donation if they haven't. Um, and you really can't imagine it. That's a very difficult time and that's a very expensive treatment. But that's Excited though, because I've been involved in quite a lot of transplants. Sometimes people, when they're in that horrible emotional time when they've lost a loved one, say no, and then they actually regret it afterwards because they realise that some good has come out of that loss. Um, they missed the opportunity, so it's very difficult. Um, I that line the blood vessel. So we want targeting for more effective drug delivery so it actually gets in the cells. But within these nanoparticles, there uh, may be, one example is an NF-kappa-B inhibitor, which is a small hydrophobic drug, kind of at the top of the chain of the inflammation cascade. So if we could stop this inflammation cascade, we could stop a big por uh, portion of these tumor diffusion injuries. So my work doesn't uh, involve the mitochondria right now, but as you can see, with nanoparticles, it's so customizable that the possibilities with it are almost endless, and you can see it being customized in the future to perhaps target another avenue of these tumor diffusion injuries.
actually use um, Bank to we're running a clinical program uh, using this technology um, and ru running a, a large randomised controlled trial um, which involved four centres Cambridge Glasgow St Thomas's Newcastle and Edinburgh so we're, we're actually just testing what's the effect of actually just using these organs for a short period before the transplant is without using nanoparticles and therapies in there um, and what we're aiming to do is improve early graft function so Jenna mentioned we use a lot of kidneys from these marginal donors and that probably doesn't mean that very much but a marginal donor is, is perhaps an older donor or a kidney that's maybe had a bit of some damage um, before it's uh, during the recruitment process in, in terms of damaging the some a period of time where it's, it's not had an oxygen or a blood supply and therefore the, the system is injured and that all results in, in a kidney that in transplant doesn't work immediately after transplantation so about 50% of these um, marginal kidneys don't work immediately they may take a few days to, to get going or, or maybe a few weeks but as you can imagine this isn't the best outcome for the patient and it would be much better to get a kidney that in transplanting works straight away so what we're trying to do is use this technology to improve this early kidney function. Um, so we're, we're running the trial and, and the conditions itself we use a, a unit of banked blood. So it's just perhaps red cells because it's made up of white cells. However, there are white cells within the kidney that remain there that actually come out of the skin to the fusion. So some of our, our work is actually looking at trying to extract these cells before the kidney is transplanted because of course that is important in the patient and, and the immune system and the signaling so also, when the kidneys are put back into the patient upon transplantation, they will come in contact with more white cells of the new patient. Um, and if those nanoparticles could last over days or weeks, it'll help with that response to the new immune system being uh, introduced. Did that answer your question? So it's interesting, kidney cells themselves are not particularly immunogenic. They don't excite an immune response very, in a very strong way. The part of the kidney that does is the so-called passenger leukocyte population. So we've got our white blood cells circulating through the blood the whole time. And they crawl into every organ in your body and have a look around to see if they, I mean, what they're there for is to, to find infections. Um, but of, of course, a, a kidney transplant is a foreign piece of tissue. It's treated like an infection. So the kidney has got, as Sarah said, the kidney's got literally millions of white blood cells in it. And in fact, they're the, the bit of the kidney which are exciting immune response more than any other cell. Kidney cells themselves are not particularly strong. So as Sarah said, if you can, if you, when you put the kidney on the circuit, the same thing happens as in your body. The white cells, they're going into and coming out of the kidney the entire time. But the ones that come out come into the blood. If you put a white cell trap in the blood, you can remove them. So some of the research we're doing <coughs> is to try and deplete the kidney of its white cell population. And then we hope that there will be less immunogenic immune-induced rejection. Of course, not all. there's a, a huge variety of white cells, and they're all bad. There's some white cells that are good white cells. So the really clever research would be to try and take all the white cells out of the kidney, then sort them, which you can do and take the inflammatory ones away and put the protective ones back in. But that's a long way off.
not we're not at that stage yet, but we the, the research we're doing at the moment is to see whether kidneys work better immediately after they're transplanted. So one of two things happens when you transplant a kidney. It wor either works immediately, in which case the patient is off dialysis, or it doesn't. And some of these marginal kidneys, it's about 50-50. 50% of them go and 50% of them don't go. When they don't go, they're much harder to manage. It doesn't mean that the transplant won't get going. It, it's actually a response to the fact it's been in ice storage. It's had some damage, which can repair. But that may take days or weeks. If the kidney doesn't, if it, it doesn't work well immediately, then it, it's lifespan is probably reduced in certain circumstances. So if we can show that the technology improves the rate at which kidneys start immediately, then hopefully that will be reflected in a longer survival decline. So the organs, the, the kidneys from the live donors in the deceased donors are, are very different because the live donor kidneys are generally healthy people. They So it's actually, they're really easy to make. You can drop them into a thin vortex of water and they'll uh, almost self-assemble like marshmallows. So creating uh, hy a hydrophobic center that's afraid of the water and form these cascades, these spheres that are very small. And it depends on the speed that the water is turning. It depends on how big the, um, the polymers you're using. So lots of opportunities to customize it. But it's made of pretty simple polymers and a really simple technique of just dropping some polymers in water. The core is made out of the same stuff that we use for some stitches in surgery. And it's polyethylene glycol with amplitude. I think there was a question. Okay, so there's about 2,500 kidney transplants in the UK each year, and 1,000 return lifetime. That's been static. It's slightly reduced for the last few years, but it's been static for about 10 years. There's somebody over here first, I think. No? Yes. Yes. Come back to me. Sure, yeah. We actually do do it, and the nicer transplants, we effectively do a kidney transplant in a test tube. So we take the, it, it's, the problem is the antibodies in the plasma, the watery bit of the recipient blood, react with the white cells from the transplant. So we take some white cells from the donor, put them in the test tube, add the recipient serum, and then see if, that, if there's antibodies there which kill the recipient cells. But you're right, we could actually, from the machine, we, we could do a much more individualized test.
test and take the, the, the white cells from the kidney and specifically put them against different people and decide which was the best transplant to do on that particular animal.
the gentleman in the back row, I'll be more specific. So normally when you get a pair of kidneys, you can um, transplant two people. But as Sarah pointed out, increasingly we're taking marginal kidneys from elderly donors who have hypertension and diabetes. And they do not, we, all of us, after the age of 40, our kidney function gradually deteriorates, which it actually happens to everything, despite what people say. Life begins at 40. Nonsense. <laughs> You've had the best bit, trust me. So, so they deteriorate. So you might have, if you've got an old kidney, it's not got as much reverb in it. So one of the things we do now is we take a biopsy of the kidney, you can look at them under the microscope and you can grade the amount of damage in them. And if a kidney is above a certain grade, then we sometimes put two marginal kidneys into one person and that it's a dual transplant. So they're getting twice as much kidney function as they would do and they seem to work very well. But you're right, two different kidneys will degrade, if you like, they will use, they will deteriorate at different rates in different people because there's about 20 different factors that affect what happens to a kidney. So, for example, I mean, if you put, take two kidneys of equal size and put one into a small person and one into a bigger person, the one in the small person will last longer because they've got less work to do because the larger person produces more metabolic waste products. Great questions. Bad answers, probably, but I am sort of impressed with the feedback. Yes, sir. Not at the moment, I'm afraid, because um, they, they did a lot of work. When you take a... Seeing whether that is the final barrier, I suspect it will probably be 
we've come across another hurdle and then it will go away to the private sector. And it's sort of within the field, people talk about Xenos transplantation as something um, that's always been around the corner and probably always will be. That's a slightly negative way of looking at it, but, but it, certainly, um, it certainly remains something that we should all look at. There's always the risk of transmitting infections as well across the species barrier, which is can be a very bad thing. So as well as viruses, there, there are these things called prions, which are proteins that fall in, you know, CJDs. Um, and that's a real issue, actually. And as you probably know, I mean, HIV AIDS came from uh, across species from Definitely can help us gain insight into how the organ works and how to develop treatments for them. 